0: Welcome back to another episode of the pre-match pint. In homage to Gareth Southgate, we are once again going with a midfield double pivot. I am your number eight. I am Luke James, and I'm joined on the other side of central midfield by Callum Ice. And Dan is still away gallivanting in Scotland. Over the past some days, Callum, what has caught your attention? Um, well, I mean, I think we're going to talk about it. Obviously,
1: uh, I've had my rants about England this week. And more specifically, Southgate. So we'll get into that into a bit more detail. Um, obviously, kind of this is something me and Dan will probably talk about a bit more when Dan's back. But the NBA, NBA really in full swing now. We're getting into the conference finals. So last night, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, were knocked out by the Miami Heat in in, a, uh, in five games, which is a, a really big loss. Um, and there's a lot of speculation about Giannis Antetokounmpo's uh, future. So that'll be really interesting to see. And then. Later on tonight, we've got obviously the Lakers and the Clippers both playing again. Both LA teams look like they're going to progress into conference finals. So yeah, we're we're really setting ourselves up for a really interesting NBA final, which me and Dan will look forward to speaking about in a couple of weeks' time when he's
0: back. For sure. I I can add absolutely nothing um, to the NBA thing you've just said. But I mean, a lot of people had the Bucks down as the the favourites, didn't they? And again, I think um, LeBron James broke another record last night, which is, again, quite... Impressive. The thing that caught my attention this week that we're not going to talk about necessarily is the US Open. So, of course, Rafael Nadal said, I'm not playing. I I don't want to be in the United States at the moment. Fair enough. Um, Roger Federer is injured, which left only Novak Djokovic as one of the big three competing in the men's side of the draw. Um, Djokovic has been eliminated from the tournament. He was disqualified from the tournament for hitting a line judge with a rogue ball after losing the game in the first set of his, I think, fourth or third round match which will mean for the first time, I think, in 16 years, that we're going to have a quarterfinal with none of the big three and, of course, a new winner at a Grand Slam event. Um, Alex Serev is already into into the semifinals, so that should be interesting. On the women's side of the draw, Osaka's through. Serena Williams is still in the competition. I think if Williams doesn't win it now, I don't think she's ever going to win another Grand Slam. I think this really is her opportunity, especially with it being behind closed doors. Um, the women's side of the draw is always interesting because it's a little bit more unpredictable. But I think the men's side this year is just totally up in the air and absolutely anything can happen.
1: Yeah, they, oh, you've obviously got uh, TM as well, haven't you? So are, we, are you kind of expecting a TM-Zverev final? Because in my eyes, I think that's kind of what I'm expecting.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think TM will probably win i think he's probably got more of the temperament than xerov like he's had some issues recently with kind of losing games that he should win i feel like he's close but he's not quite there i think it's probably kind of the austrians time to shine at this point i think the women's side of the draw you could just pick any of them and it could happen it's it's so so difficult to predict women's Um,
1: tennis is just really interesting though because i think i don't know if we've had this discussion on here before but it always feels like women's tennis, they don't seem to stick around at the top of the game as often as men, like from kind of when I, like when I started watching tennis, obviously Federer, Nadal, um, Djokovic have always been at the top. But from the women's game, there always seems to be someone new and fresh coming through or one of the top kind of 10 kind of like falling off and not being as good as they used to be. So I think actually women's tennis is probably a lot more interesting than men's in, in my eyes.
0: In terms of the competition as a whole, I'd say so. And it's important to remember that we've grown up in such a weird era of tennis where the men's side has just been utterly dominated by three people. And kind of you have Federer being the one who's kind of the most long standing of the three. and Then you had Djokovic emerge. You had Nadal emerge slightly before him too. And obviously you had the period when it was the big four, you had Murray up there, but of course his kind of hip injury has, has put that to rest. I think, yeah, tennis is fascinating. I, I really love tennis and especially Wimbledon. It's the best tournament for me personally. Um, but this year has been so odd. And you look at the U.S. Open, the women's side, I think it was only three of the top 10 in the world participated in the U.S. Open because of COVID-19 restrictions and just an unwillingness to take part at the moment. Um, and that's a huge loss because the likes of kind of Ashley Bartley, uh, Barty rather, isn't participating in the U.S. Open or the French Open. She won the French Open last year, the Australian player. Um and yeah, there's lots of examples where players, especially based in Europe, just didn't want to compete in the US Open. And again, with a look towards the French Open, I think the organisers in France want to have 11,000 spectators in the ground during the tournament per day. And the, I think the reason that Barty pulled out was she just didn't want to be involved in the tournament with that many spectators present. Um, and again, it's it's a true testament to player power, player power in tennis because you wouldn't see that in many other sports. And again, it'll be interesting to see if, if Rafa Nadal decides to take part because this, again, the French Open is his tournament, is the one that he always wins. Um, so here's hoping that he does kind of head to Paris at, the, at this kind of later this month, which I think will be interesting to see. I feel like we should probably start with Gareth Southgate, Callum, because you've had... A couple of quite um, interesting tweets about the topic. So, of course, we'll set the scene. So, England have played two international matches over the past weekend. We beat Iceland by goal to nil, courtesy of a Raheem Sterling 90th minute penalty, I believe, something like that. And then, of course, uh, last night on Tuesday at the time of recording, England played out a exceptionally dull nil nil draw against Iceland, in which the One Football app described. And I think this was about half an hour through the game, so they were very confident that nothing was going to change. I got a notification saying this is like the worst game of 2020. And again, there have been some proper kind of stinkers this year. I mean, I've watched many of them. So, Callum, what's going on with England? Why are you so annoyed about Gareth Southgate? And what should we do next?
1: Well, what's going on with England is an an interesting point. I mean, the, the new dubbing is like kind of like the new golden generation, but I don't want to use that term because, I mean, the last golden generation was not exactly great in the end. So I don't think we can really say that. But yeah, for me at the moment, I, I just terribly, terribly frustrated with Gareth Southgate and kind of how he's setting up that team. I mean, if you kind of look at like the prospects we have in an attack, we have such, such good prospects there, obviously Jaden Sancho, Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane. Um, I think Darren Bent tweeted last night saying that the fact Daddy Ings scored 22 goals in the Premier League last season and got 22 minutes in an England in his first England call-up since 2015 is an absolute joke. And one of my problems, first off, is that Southgate has always prided himself on picking players on form rather than reputation. But at the moment, that seems to have gone out the window. He, I mean, he didn't pick Jack Grealish to start off when he first selected his team, and was kind of forced into that decision. Um, the fact he's picking Jordan Pickford in goal still. Uh, is a joke when nick pope was literally named in the pfa team of the year last night um and then just the whole tactical setup so i mean i tweeted um but on the game against iceland southgate doesn't have a tactical identity at all i mean in the world cup i'm pretty sure we play uh, a 4-3-3 three, three kind of system but sometimes we're trying five at the back with Carl walker in the center back and he's kind of doing that more than ever now he's he really flicking between formations um and at the moment, he just doesn't seem to know what personnel he wants to choose. I mean, he started Kieran Trippier at left back. And I, I know from my experience of a very low level football that being a, right, a right-footed right player playing at left back is extremely hard if you, are, you aren't doing it. So, I mean, I know Kieran Trippier is a lot, a lot more senior than me, but to be thrown into an England game um, with that inexperience there is pretty terrible. And then kind of, yeah, last night, I mean, I can't remember what paper it was, but one of the papers basically reported the lineup very early on in the day. And that team for me, I just did, I was like, I'm not putting myself through watching a Gareth Southgate side. We're playing five at the back um, with a double pivot with two of the most defensive players in uh, England's midfield in Dyer and Calvin Phillips. If you're going to play Dyer or Phillips, play one of them. And play them next to someone more progressive i know henderson's out at the moment but even then henderson's not progressive in the terms of maybe mason mount or jack grealish and then you were seeing tweets like oh um england are struggling to get up the pitch and the gap between the strikers and the midfield is too large it's like well what do you expect you're playing two defensive midfielders that are supposed to sit in front of the defense so yeah for me i, I just think there's a completely tactical inconsistency with southgate and He's just kind of nullifying the kind of attacking threat we have in that team at the moment. But I'm sure we'll go into more detail, but that's my kind of like immediate rant
0: over. It's it's tricky with England because as you say, there are lots of players kind of coming to a, a high level in kind of their careers and and even at the start of their careers as well, who are so so talented and playing attacking positions. Like we've got Marcus Rashford, Harry Kane, of course, kind of the best striker we have, Jaden Sancho, Raheem Sterling, Jack Grealish, James Madison. We've got all of these players who have lots of potential. And, of course, that's not to mention the two players kind of disgraced before, before the second international that we've just had. Um, Southgate has lots of options. And, again, I, I think I said this on the last podcast, he just does seem to have an aversion to play in number 10s. He doesn't like having an attacking midfielder. I think he sees them as kind of a waste of a player, especially kind of, on the defensive transition. I just don't believe that he thinks they give the team enough. Um, I'll read out the England team that took on Denmark, because I think it's important just to kind of recap. So we had Pickford in goal with a back three of Gomez, Cody and Dyer. You then had wing backs of Alexander, Arnold and Trippier. At midfield, you had Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips. And then up front, you had Sancho, Kane and Sterling. The substitutions for England, you had... Maitland Niles came on in the 87th minute for Alexander Arnold. Um, Jack Grealish came on after 76 minutes for Calvin Phillips, and then Mason Now came on for Jaden Sancho after the hour mark. It's a it's a weird team, isn't it? Because I I personally and, and we said this off off kind of air as well. I, I don't really dislike. The five-two-three-three-four-three-one system, three-four-three uh, <laughs> three system. I think it can work. And again, you look at the Chelsea team under Antonio Conte; it, it did work in the Premier League. There is kind of evidence of that. It's just, as you say, it was the wrong personnel. It was far too defensive, and it reminds me of kind of a spell that West Ham had under under Sam Allardyce, where he'd pick um, Alex Song. Mark Noble, and Cayute, so three defensive midfielders, and then kind of be confused, well, there wasn't really much of an attacking out there. It was just a bit odd. Um, and yeah, I, I honestly believe that Gareth Southgate is fundamentally a defensive manager. When you look, and again, Southgate talks a lot about keeping possession and about kind of being good on the ball and all this kind of stuff. But we never see with this England team a willingness to kind of advance the play to play progressive passes forwards. I mean, there's lots of kind of like, 60, 70-yard cross-pitch passes to the opposite winger. But possession for England is, is kind of keep it around the defence. It's more... It, basically, England-like defensive possession, don't they? they? They don't have attacking possession in the sense where you're trying to manoeuvre the other team around. It's like, we'll keep the ball so they can't score. Um My final point before I throw this back to you, Callum, is... Oh, actually, I, I'll, I'll put, it, put it over as a question. Had Jordan Pickford not been the hero the penalty saving hero at the world cup would he still be first choice goalkeeper for england Uh, no there's no chance he
1: would be and once again kind of what i said about um uh, southgate picking players based on the team basically they play for if nick pope went and played for chelsea this season nick pope would become england's number one hands down There, there isn't a question about it if he went and had a season like he had last season at a team like chelsea Nick Pope would be England's number one. So I know he'll say that he obviously played Connor Cody last night and played Calvin Phillips, who hasn't even played a game in the Premier League yet. But I mean, he was very much kind of forced into their decisions in the end. I think Cody got a late call up um, and kind of, I think if Foden and Greenwood probably hadn't have been uh, caught trying to break COVID rules and bringing the girls back to the hotel, I'm not actually sure whether Calvin Phillips would have played the like as much as he did um be fair to calvin phillips i i from the highlights i watched i was actually really really impressed by him i actually think he was probably england's best player last night um i think his role in that team was quite interesting so so that's the thing i don't hate him or uh, or rice i think they're actually both quality players but they they play in the same position and play very similar styles but calvin phillips last night kind of his role kind of he'd sweep up across the back four and he kind of acted like a quarterback in, in a sense. He was pinging long balls out to um, either winger. But once again, going back to the problem, you've got so much space when you're playing two defensive-minded players between your front three and, and then your basically back seven. And if you want to play counter-attacking football, the worst striker I think in the world for playing counter-attacking football is Harry Kane. You cannot play counter-attacking football with him as striker. Um, he, he He's fairly decent at holding up the ball, but I wouldn't wouldn't say that's one of his specialties he's clearly not quick and the reason he gets quite a few goals he he's kind of a poacher but he's just a great finisher as well so if you're expecting to be able to ping long balls over the top with calvin phillips then harry Kane to run onto, you're kind of mistaken like it works for arsenal because they've got a Bammyam up front so for me i think if gareth southward is going to kind of go for this more counter-attacking defensive possession kind of team he, he has to really think Harry Kane's position in that team and I mean you don't want to lose literally the top scorer of the World Cup so he's got a pick between probably that system or Harry Kane's kind of profit as a striker
0: yeah I'll ask the question do you agree that England are best as a counter attacking team do you think that's kind of the setup that Southgate should look towards or do you think we should be more possession orientated or just simply just attacking kind of from the (laughs) get-go
1: It's really interesting. Like, I think counter attacking definitely has its its benefits. Um, give you can give you a really nice structural position in defence. Uh, but kind of if, you, if it depends what kind of counter attacking you want to go for. Because I think what we saw last night, kind of from what I picked up, is that we're going to sacrifice our wingers um, in terms of defensive positioning. So they'll they'll kind of be similar to what Liverpool do. They'll kind of push up high on the pitch and get ready in counter attacking positions. Which I mean it leaves a massive gap between your fullback and um, your winger, which is quite easy to exploit if a team can pick up on that. So I think, I think there's definitely some, some benefits to the system, but I don't think that's the best counter-attacking system that he can use. I, I said, you've already said we spoke about it off air. We kind of both agreed that a formation we'd actually quite like to see England play if, we, if we're gonna play, if we wanna get the best out of Harry Kane, it's probably a 4-4-2 which kind of in when you're in attacking possession probably comes into more like a 4-2-4 four, four, four with um, and Sterling on either wing. And then I think pairing um, Harry Kane up front with a pacey striker and either Danny Ings or you said Marcus Rashford would work a lot better. Um, you obviously then would have the benefits of both of uh, t- the two strikers and Harry Kane being able to kind of uh, win flick-ons and get in a box to finish whilst you have a pacey player being able to close down from the front. But then also when you're out of possession you obviously can slot into a four, uh, 4 4 2 and kind of have sterling and sancho dropping back a little bit more um and then he, he can play the midfield if he really wanted die of, Dier, of um, rice Dyer, or calvin Phillips. because if you if you're sacrifice if you're going to have a 4 2 4 going forward sacrificing two players to sit in front of your defense and kind of cover or sweep up the balls coming forward isn't a bad system so I think there's definitely um better systems he can use than that kind of whatever five, two, three that he was using last night, which is just a bizarre formation anyway.
0: Yeah, part of the rationale when we were talking about this last night, part of the rationale behind the idea of saying England should play four four two is Gareth Southgate has an aversion to attacking midfielders, he simply just won't use one. And I don't and again, I think this is crept up on people because this has been a theme throughout his time as England manager, but it's only really come to a head now because everyone is desperate to see Jack Grealish start for England. Everyone's desperate to see James Madison start for England. And then you've kind of got the back and forth between supporters of those two okay. clubs. Um, I think that's an issue. So he's not going to play for one, quite simply because he just doesn't like number ten. So it's just not going to happen. And then you look at the alternatives and you say, well, if he wants quite a, a boring central midfield partnership, either of two fours or a four and an eight, then you have to have kind of options out wide. So then the four four two might work in a conventional sense. So you just have your, especially your right fullback, who will be Alexander Ronald pe- uh, pushing on, overlapping on the right hand side. Your left back probably sits a little bit deeper, and then you have kind of obviously your, your two central defenders sitting deep, and the two central midfielders kind of having more of a disciplined role in the team. So four four two for England probably works to an extent, it just depends whether you're willing to sacrifice that extra body in midfield. Although he did last night. So theoretically Southgate would be willing to do so. Um, What I would say about England as well is our best players or the players who play in the most successful teams in England are all at their best when their teams counterattack. So some of my kind of favorite Manchester City goals are when they break at pace. uh, They break really, really quickly. And, Score a foul post tapping, and then invariably it's normally Raheem Sterling who's involved. And again, with Liverpool, some of Liverpool's most effective work is when they notice that the team's out of shape at the other end of the pitch, counter-attack really quickly, put the cross into the box, and they score. And again, we've got players who play for the, both of those teams. You've got Sterling, kind of Trent Alexander Arnold, um, Jordan Henderson when he's fit, etc., etc., who would quite happily play on the transition. So there's no reason to say that England have to be a possession team. And I don't think England have a history of even. English football isn't predicated on the idea of possession being a good thing. I mean, you look at kind of the um, kind of exaggerated version of kind of English football history is basically kick it to the big land. And there's no, there isn't a history of finesse in English football. And I think counterattacking for this English team is a, is a happy kind of halfway house between playing this, this tick-attacker style that was so kind of influential during kind of Spain's period of dominance and doing something a little bit more modern because I don't think, and again, people get blown away by this, but ticket ticker isn't for me an attractive brand of football because it's, it's about retaining possession. It's about killing the game off. It's about scoring one goal and then sitting back. Like, The Spanish team under um, Vincent Del Bosque was very defensive and didn't score many goals as a team that won the World Cup by winning several games 1-0 and kind of doing it like that. It wasn't exciting. And again, early Barcelona under Pep Guardiola wasn't particularly exciting either. So I don't think we need to go down this possession route. I don't think people particularly care how we can play because we get to a World Cup. So hear me out. So we get to a World Cup. People are going to watch it anyway. Realistically, No one really, really cares about the qualifiers. No one particularly cares about the Nations League either. So you get to the World Cup and you have this, uh, obviously not in kind of pandemic era, but you have this big swell of support behind the team. Again, if they're popular in the press, so on and so forth. And then you get behind the team throughout the tournament. And then if they go far in the tournament, as we saw in 2018, people get excited about it. England didn't play a great style of football in 2018. We were quite defensive, beat quite a few kind of, low level opponents and then lost twice to Belgium and and Croatia. So it's not like the 2018 World Cup was this roaring success. I don't I don't subscribe to the view that it was all kind of a sham in England and never that good in the first place. I think it was a good tournament for England. But the point is, it doesn't take much to get English people on the side to support the national team. And I just feel like if we had this style of football that just played to the strengths of the majority of the team that would make sense. So the the question I was going to throw to you: If Harry Kane didn't exist, would England be a counter-attacking team? Is this all because we're trying to pigeonhole Kane into a team that is not massively built to his strengths?
1: Um, I guess you got to look at it, probably different different kind of eras because obviously I think Kane kind of basically kept Vardy out of that side when Vardy was at his peak. Um, with Leicester obviously I mean he's still at his peak with Leicester but obviously he doesn't want to play international football Um, and I think with Vardy in the side we probably would have played counter-attacking football Um, I mean Vardy is pretty much the perfect player to to play counter-attacking football with Um, Rashford again I think Rashford can play a really nice uh, counter-attacking game there was a goal last season where him Bruno Fernandes Mason Greenwood and Martial literally ran the length of the pitch with the ball and ended up scoring a really nice work goal. Um, so that, he could definitely play as a, like the focal point of his counter-attacking team. Um, but if you're going to use Danny Ings, who I think probably should be at the moment England's second-choice striker, I, I don't think he's necessarily your counter-attacking kind of striker. I think he can play it, but I think he, I think there's a lot more benefits through Danny Ings' game than getting him in a, in a counter-attack. But yeah, I, I think with, the, with Kane, kane isn't for england kane isn't actually as good as people think i don't think kane scores goals and it but in the world cup we saw a lot of his goals came from penalties he can win himself a foul very very well he's very good at uh, getting getting fouls which i mean is a benefit to the england team because their set pieces are brilliant and a lot of our goals from the world cup came from corners or free kicks but harry kane in an england system is not i actually don't think the best choice in striker but obviously you will not drop him but if I was picking a striker, I wouldn't pick Harry Kane.
0: I agree. Um, and again, without wanting to sound like kind of football Twitter at this point, a lot of Harry Kane's goals at the international level come, across, come against kind of lower quality defences or at the World Cup were from set pieces and penalties. And again, I, that, I don't think that should detract from the fact that he had a very good goalscoring record for England. I just feel like if you put someone else in the team, they probably score the same goals too. I don't think, I don't basically, I don't think Harry Kane adds anything to this team. I don't think he he massively. I don't think he's a huge drag on on the quality of this England squad. I think he's a good player to definitely have in the team. I just don't think on his own up front as a lone striker, he is kind of the catalyst for this squad. I, I just believe that kind of as you say, there's probably better choices elsewhere whether that be Danny Ings based on form, someone like Marcus Rashford based on kind of the profile of kind of his style of play. Do you think kind of we're in the group with um, Belgium, Denmark and Iceland, do you think we'll qualify for the finals or do you not see us beating Belgium? Oh, no, there isn't, I don't think there's a chance in hell we beat Belgium. Um,
1: Belgium Belgium's team is that, so good. It, the fact they haven't reached a final is kind of... A, uh, criminal. Um because I think Belgium's side is really, really good. I actually think if the Euros had been this year, they would have they've done superbly. Um and just kind of going back to that Harry Kane point really quick. I don't think that should be seen as a hit on Harry Kane from either of us. Oh, well certainly not from me, because I, I once again I think it is that Southgate doesn't know how to use him efficiently. And i, I think that's kind of another problem with Southgate you kind of said about Vincent Del Bosque and Pep Guardiola knowing how to manage games. I don't think Southgate knows how to manage a game. I think, I think it's very rare. You see him make a tactical swap that you think, oh yeah, that, that'll, that'll work. That'll shut the team out. And to be honest, I don't think he's a great man manager either. I think he, I think he's a great motivator. I think that's the one thing you can say about Gareth Southgate is he's brilliant at motivating the team, but he's definitely not the tactical manager that, I think you kind of want that international level, and I think that's one of the reasons that kind of Roberto Di Matteo will kind of um, be able to get a, the better of uh, Gareth Southgate side because Roberto Di Matteo, in my eyes, is a much better tactical manager.
0: Yeah, I I can't particularly see England beating Belgium if I'm being totally honest. However, if apart slightly, I do think that maybe Southgate is testing this system, testing this combination of players with the view of. Playing defensively against Belgium and hoping to nick a goal late in a game and winning it that way, could could this be an era where rather than focusing on England's attacking strengths, we we kind of look more towards an Italian style of play and approach things defensively? I mean, it's possible. I think it would be disappointing, and I don't think it would it would kind of bring lots of kind of neutrals on board. But I think there's maybe a reason to believe that that could be kind of the approach that Southgate is taking. It could be possible that he thinks, well, our attacking players are good enough to make the most of any opportunities they get. So therefore, I need to focus more on having a strong defence and kind of letting the strikers and the wingers feed off of the scraps from, from the rest of the game. Do you think that's possible or, or do we just kind of disagree fundamentally with, with what's going on with England at the moment? Um,
1: well, obviously it is possible. I mean, okay, maybe maybe not. Sterling's probably not a good example, but I think obviously Harry Kane and Sancho have both scored goals in high press situations and kind of out of nowhere. Um, I, I, I do uh, once again. I think uh, I think it is unfair. Obviously, the only reason I'm kind of saying about Sterling not being able to do that is kind of his miss against Leon. But kind, if of you have seen an evolution of Sterling as a finisher since you've been working with Pep Guardiola. Um, And going back to the World Cup, if Harry Kane had squared it to him in the semi-final, Sterling probably would have scored. Like I doubt he would have missed that chance. But uh, it's strange. I don't know if you can really really split the team that much in terms of, right, we're going to have this many people in defence and then we'll only have three people up front just because they're world class. I mean, they are world class, but look at the players they're playing with in their respective teams. Mean, Sancho as obviously Haaland um, Brucia Dortmund kind of has uh, Axel Vitzel in behind him in pre-season. Jude Bellingham's been supplying him some with some assists and looks quality. Um, and then if you look at Tottenham as well, obviously, um, a lot of the time when Harry Kane works really well, he has um, min Son working up beside him, um, or maybe even Lucas Moura. So I, I think Harry Kane definitely needs more support than two wingers. Um. And Sterling, once again, you obviously have Kevin De Bruyne, Aguero. So there's a lot of people in the team, in, in all of them teams, who kind of assist the, all three of them players in terms of their like, their attacking duties. So to kind of leave them up front on their own as a free is, is kind of, especially if teams are setting up with a four back, you're leaving four against three most of the time, unless they're pushing their four backs forward. I just don't see it working in terms of an attacking sense. In a defensive sense, yeah, it does work. I mean, we saw that last night. We shut out Denmark who, Denmark on a bad side. I, I, I was very impressed by Kasper Dahlberg. And I, I, I've really liked Kasper Dahlberg since he was at Ajax. Um, obviously, Christian Eriksen is a great player. We know that from his Tottenham days. But really, really, we should be beating Denmark. And the lack of chances that we created in that game is a real worry.
0: It's difficult with England um, because before Southgate came into the job, I think everyone was very, very negative about the national team, and and kind of you looked across the home nations and Wales were were doing a much better job, kind of under under previous management as well. And then you had Gareth Southgate come in, you had this big positive World Cup, and now we're in the situation where it feels like kind of waistcoat mania has of started to subside, and we're looking into a more kind of pessimistic era of kind of English football, if. Southgate left today I think it's probably going to be the final point we covered on this is Southgate left today who would you want to see as the next England manager
1: um in terms of who I want to see um my, my first pick would be Jesse Marsh from Salzburg and uh, that'll be really rogue and it will never ever happen he's got many years ahead of him in club management uh, in my eyes but Jesse Marsh's style of football is that it's superb really it's it can kind of flick between a counter-attacking or a possession-based style, depending on who you're playing. And I think we saw that against Liverpool, um, in in the game away at Anfield, uh, Salzburg were a lot more counter-attacking. But at home, they controlled the possession and actually created a lot more chances. In and didn't switch formation. Um, Jesse Marsh is probably my first choice, but that's not going to happen. I mean, obviously, the obvious choice for most people would say is Eddie Howe, but. I think we, you will say this as well, and I definitely agree, is that it is kind of a sideways step. Um, he's, not, he, he's a bigger name and he's been linked with bigger jobs and that's the only reason that people really want him in an England management. But is Eddie Howe actually a better manager than Southgate? It's hard to say, especially at international level. I'm not sure it would work. Um, the realistic one, but once again, there's probably some people that would, would argue it wouldn't work. But someone that I think would be great is Arsene Wenger. I think Arsene Wenger's kind of club career is kind of over. But as an international manager, we've seen what he can do with young players. And we can, we he, we know he's a great, great manager. So I'd love to see Arsene Wenger in, uh, in, in an England job. And I think a lot of people obviously argue kind of since Capello that you can't have a foreign manager managing an england side or any kind of foreign uh, manager managing a team that isn't their national team but i think with wenger there's kind of because um, he has been in the english game for so long and kind of the modern day premier league that we see was massively influenced by him i don't actually think he would be a bad fit for england i actually think he would get the english game a lot more than a lot of the foreign managers
0: yeah, I agree. Uh, what I would say, I think Eddie Howe would be the worst solution. I think he's a worse manager than Gareth Southgate. And you look at the money that Bournemouth have spent over recent years; they've invested heavily. Uh, again, it's, it might be harsh to to lay this at Eddie Howe's door, but they've spent a lot of money on 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 young players in particular, and they've just not come off. Whether that's an issue with the recruitment process at Bournemouth or whether that's partly on on Eddie Howe as well remains to be seen. Um, but I worry about that. And again, you look at Eddie Howe's team. And it's been years, I know he's not manager anymore, but it's been years and years and years since Bournemouth actually played the attacking brand of football that people liked them for. Like you watched Bournemouth in 2019 and you watched them in 2018 and they were an absolute shadow of themselves kind of compared to the high scoring team that got promoted. And again, the idea of that was to shore up the defence, make it easy to stay in the Premier League and kind of build a firmer base for the future. But people liked Eddie Howe because he was this maverick young English coach who played an attacking 4 4 and kind of tried to stick it to the big boys. And again, you got to the end of his reign at Bournemouth and they were getting kind of beaten pretty convincingly by the likes of Liverpool, Manchester City in deep defensive four four two blocks. And I feel like if, if we don't like Gareth Southgate because he's a defensive manager with, with an aversion to number 10, so then Eddie Howe isn't the person we need. Um my my love for Jesse Marsh is well documented. Um I think he'd be a great manager for England, but again, it's it's realistically not going to happen at this point. I think it is a number of years away from that. And again, he said that he wants to manage the, the US men's national team, so I can't see him taking the England job before then. Um if you're interested in hearing more about Jesse Marsh, I did write an article about his career for World Football Index, so take a look at that. Um last suggestion was Arsen Wenger. I, I agree, I think it'd be a really interesting pick. And I think about the squad that he'd pick, he'd go four three three or 4-2-3-1 probably, although, of course, towards the end of his Arsenal career, he did play through at the back of the and Antonio Conte in the cup final is, is the memorable game. Um, I like that suggestion. I like Wenger quite a lot, but he's 70. And, I mean, the World Cup is two years away, so he'll be 72 by the time he gets to the World Cup. Would he then want to take us to the European Championships' aid, 74? I mean, I'm I'm slightly skeptical, but but we we could see I guess. But yeah, I think that that kind of speaks to the issue as well. The, the names we're talking about, they're quite thin on the ground. There's not that many options, and especially English managers, you could readily kind of install as a new national team manager. And again, like Sean Dyche, is unhappy at Burnley, but if we're not happy with Gareth Southgate because of his brand of football, then Sean Dyche again might not be the answer.
1: Yeah, I there is a real lack of quality England potential managers I think obviously you said Sean Dyche but I think the only other one that people probably would look at in the Premier League at the moment that could potentially manage England is Steve Bruce and I mean that's once again kind of a similar situation to both Southgate and Sean Dyche is that the the brand of football is just not attractive but maybe maybe that's just kind of what we've got to kind of realise that we're not going to ever get a manager well at the moment we're not going to get a manager that is going to play attractive football but my problem my more my problem with southgate is that it is not exactly the, the style of football it's the people he's picking to play that style of football i don't think it's the correct the correct choices but i think it could work with the correct personnel but at the
0: moment it's just not final thoughts on england callum are we going to win the european championships next year
1: I don't think i don't think he's ever kind of, i don't think i ever thought we were going to win it but i, I don't think we'll do it awfully but i just don't want it I, I kind of hope we do well with a nice like a nice style of football with the correct people in the team rather than kind of it kind of was a fluke at the world cup like it wasn't ever amazing but i won't i won't say i didn't enjoy it because i, I loved every single minute of it but i'd rather i i, I think i don't think we're going to do as well as we did at the World Cup because I think a lot of the teams have got better whilst kind of do you think maybe we've regressed a little bit.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think we're going to win the Euros. Um, I'll ask you this as well. Who is going to win the Euros? You think London? Um I, th- I
1: thought going into it this year, I think I thought France, and to be honest, I probably think that he's probably going to stay the same. I think there's something in France at the moment. That there's been years since France had a really strong team and a really strong youth team, but kind of France's team it is getting a little bit older, obviously Griezmann's getting older, Hugo Lloris is getting older, but the youth coming through in France is, is exceptional, I mean, they've got that Camavinga who made his debut last night at just the age of 17 um, I think he was the third youngest player to ever make his appearance at France, and he looks he looks ready-made for football already. and then they've got plenty of other talent coming through in like Ligue 1, they've got uh, a guy called a deal I can't say Sole, but he plays for um Saint Etienne, who looks really good. Um, they got Adley, who also looked really nice. but and then I just think I don't really think you can kind of look past that team at the moment. I mean I think they played last night. I don't actually know that score, but first of all that, that have you seen that love goal girl uh, against France last night? I, uh, that. I recommend everybody goes and watches this lover and girl. I think Liverpool should sign him back as their uh, backup striker. It is It's beautiful, but yeah, I think France's base as a team is great, and I think the youth coming through that can kind of bleed fresh blood into that team next year is
0: superb. Yeah, I agree. Which is is exceptionally boring, but I, I do think France are the best team, definitely in Europe. Um, I mean, any team with with Mbappe up front is just going to be. Devastatingly good at a kind of knockout tournament, so yeah, I, I think that that's quite concerning for the other teams in the competition. Um, before we move on, I will I will give a rogue shout out as well to the Faroe Islands um, for winning back to back games for the first time in like twenty six years, um, and they to, to beat Malta in the second game. I think they won three two, and they scored a they scored a free kick from about thirty yards in the last minute, um, which again is is quite nice. It's quite feel good kind of football at that at that stage. So yeah, I do recommend kind of. Having a look at those highlights too. Um, of course, this weekend marks the return of the Premier League. And as always, with with football-related podcasts, we should probably do some predictions and get everything horrifically wrong. Um Are you excited for the Premier League to return, Cullen?
1: Um, oh, I mean, of course. Uh, I think the Premier League is probably one of the greatest tournaments in the world. Um and I think I think a lot of the top teams in the league this year have kind of strengthened, which is only a benefit to the league. Because even as a Liverpool fan, the past two seasons where it has been, even Man City or Liverpool or what the past four years probably, that it's Man City kind of dominating it. You don't want it to go down that route. You don't want it to become a Bundesliga or a league. Um, so I think it's great that they're strengthening and I'm really excited to see Leeds uh, back in the Premier League, uh, especially under Marcelo Bielsa. I mean, their fan base is just incredible, anyway. So I think watching Leeds this year will be really exciting. So yes, yeah, definitely going to be an interesting season in my eyes.
0: For sure, I agree. I'm I'm not too excited from a partisan perspective. I think I think this could be quite a miserable season for me personally. Um, I am really excited to see the Premier League come back, though. I, I, I'm. And again, you'll you'll get this message throughout the rest of the podcast. But I'm genuinely really looking forward to seeing Chelsea play. Um, I love their business. I think, and if they sign a goalkeeper, which it does look like they're going to over the next couple of days, I think Chelsea could be seriously good this season. Again, you look further down the league as well, and we're going to do predictions in a moment. But Everton, for the first time in a while, have really strengthened. Well, it seems anyway, have have strengthened brilliantly in the transfer market this summer. They've, they've done some ridiculous business. And again, you, you look at the group of teams kind of outside the traditional top six. Everton have done great transfer business. Wolves were already a good already a good team, but have dropped, what, 40 million on a on an 18-year-old. Leicester, again, really interesting team. Then you've got teams like Southampton, who ended the season so strongly. Newcastle United done really good transfer business. Sheffield United were really good last season. I think they'll probably kind of decline a little bit this year, but still they'll be good. And then Leeds United, who everyone keep talking about, there's a true decent chunk of teams who should kind of make up the middle of the pack this year. And I think and normally it's normally it's a case of top six and then seventh to tenth is normally the categories. But this year I think it's more like top six and then seventh down to 12th-ish. I think it's going to be so interesting to see how it unfolds. Um. I feel like we should start with the predictions. Callum, would you like to go bottom up or top down? Um,
1: should we go top down? Because I feel like it's kind. the top is kind of more of a nailed on kind of decision in terms of your like top six, whereas the kind of bottom,
0: you can throw quite a few teams into the mix there. Yeah. So we're not going to do one to 20 predictions in depth, although I can list them off anyway. Um, but starting off with, do you want to go sixth or first to begin? Should we go sixth? We'll go sixth up. Okay, so come on. Who have you got sixth? Um, so, so
1: I've gone with Tottenham in sixth. I think I really actually like what Jose Mourinho is doing with that team. Um, and I think, I think I spoke about this last week. He, if you watch their preseason, they've gone with this five-back formation. Um, I think will really suit Matt Doherty. One of their signings so I think it's a great signing. I think he only costs $15 million. I mean, it's a bargain, really. Um, and then, obviously, they've got a f- kind of their full strength team for the first time in quite a while. Harry Kane is, is back, Son's back, and um, I think they'll do well. But I just think a lot of the teams above them have are strengthened um, quite drastically. Um, so I, th- I think Tottenham will have a good season, but I don't think they're going to push on any further than sixth.
0: Okay, for sure. So sixth place for me. I ooh, uh, sixth place for me. I'm going for Arsenal, um, which might raise some some eyebrows. I think they've got a good team and I quite like their business as well. Um they've probably not done enough though for me. I think kind of Gabrielle should be a good player. I think William is okay, but I don't think he's gonna set the world on fire. The one I'm most excited to see kind of come back this year is um William Serevia. I think he's looked, looked like a great defender in in League last year is in line to start on the opening weekend of the season as well. So that should be interesting as well. Um, the issue with Arsenal, the reason I've not put them higher, is just they still have that inconsistency streak. And I'm not convinced that they're totally out of that kind of headspace. And with European football, they'll have as well. It it could be slightly problematic in terms of kind of consistency throughout the season, especially when fixtures start to, start to mount up. And the biggest question marks at Arsenal as well, obviously, they've still got Mesut Ozil at the club. Will he play any role or will he just kind of sit on a beach for the rest of the year? Um, And the other one is Alexandre Lacazette. There's been reports that he could potentially leave the Emirates this, well, I would say summer, but it's kind of into the autumn now anyway. Um, And again, that's that's another big player that they could lose. And uh, Aubameyang hasn't signed a new contract yet either. Um, So there's just, although I like Arteta, and I think Arteta will do good in the long run for Arsenal if he's given the time, I feel like they're probably below kind of the less the rest of the top six at this point. Callum, in fifth position, who have you gone for?
1: I think this will might probably raise more eyebrows um, than than your selection of Arsenal in fifth. I've gone for Man United in fifth, and I think it's pro- it's important to caveat that, and we probably should have done this before, but it's important that we're kind of talking about this whilst deals haven't been done. So if if I think if Sancho goes to Man United they could it could bump up a little bit more or if they get a really strong center back it's think it would bump it up bump them up a little bit more but kind of my my worry at the moment is their one main signing at the moment is obviously Donny van de Beek and don't get me wrong he's a superb player um i can't believe he hasn't been bought from ajax before uh, before this has happened but to me i think the one position in man united's team that hasn't been strengthened is their defense um wan is a great defender and Harry Maguire is also a really good defender. But the problem with Harry Maguire is he is kind of put next to someone who is less less reliable. And Harry Maguire in himself isn't reliable anyway. So if you've got two calamitous defenders in your team, it's a massive problem. And especially given that Chelsea have strengthened, I think Arsenal looks uh, far superior under Arteta than they did uh, under Emery. I think Man United's defence could be kind of a... A weak point for them, and to be honest, I don't really like Luke Shaw either. So I'm, I'm, they're linked with Reguilon from um, Man United you know, uh, from Real Madrid at the moment, and I, he'd be a great signing to, once again. That would bump them up. But for me, I think I think Manchester United going forward are a great side, but I think there's definitely some pro- issues at the back, and I don't think they've strengthened enough. And to be honest, I just don't know if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is kind of the manager to push Man United up into the, kind of the the new era of dominance for that team.
0: I think on Manchester United, I'll talk about them on kind of my predictions in a minute. I worry about the lack of balance in midfield because potentially their well, the best three midfielders are, are Van der Beek, exactly. who is, is a number 10, isn't he? But he's not a playmaker, is he is just an attacking no. midfielder who likes to link the play. Mm. Um, he's obviously a great player and, and should probably be in the starting lineup. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has said that these three players will be in his team together or he yeah. hopes to put them in the team together, which is really concerning, in my opinion. Uh, and then, obviously, Paul Pogba, who, again, prefers attacking to defending, and Bruno Fernandes, who, again, prefers attacking to defending. And I just look at that team and I'm like, where's the, where's the balance? How does that midfield work together? And, again, all of those players that we've listed like to be very progressive in possession. They like to get the ball forward as quickly as possible. And that's great. And, again, too much of a good thing is a bad thing, essentially. You need someone in your team who's going to be happy to kind of get their foot on the ball, slow the tempo down and keep possession. And an example, this isn't Man United related, but I remember West Ham were playing Crystal Palace and it was late in the game. West Ham were winning the match. I think it was probably 2-1. Um, the ball was sent over to Mick Antoniou, who was playing on the wing. He, he should have run to the corner flag. He didn't. Crystal Palace then went up the other end and scored. And sometimes you just need a player who's willing to to do the unpopular, unfashionable thing and just slow the pace of the game down. And if you have Fernandes, Pogba, van der Beek in, in the same team, I worry that that might not be the case. Mm. However, I, I do have them finishing in the top four. In fifth position, I have Tottenham Hotspur. Um, again, I feel like this is slightly rogue as well. Um, in my notes, I, I've said this is slightly irrational, but I have a fair amount of faith that Mourinho pulls off a decent season despite a lack of signings. That's essentially it, really. I just have a gut feeling that with Mourinho, his strengths and weaknesses aside, I think he's probably got enough about him to to lead Tottenham to fifth. You look at their transfer business; they've signed Giovanni De Celso permanently. He's a good player. He should kind of be embedded into the spine of the team this season. You've got Matt Dossity, who you've spoken about, who again is a good player, and it probably means the end of end of the road for Serge Aurier. And again. Pierre Hoyberg, who I've really liked since he joined Southampton, I think is a great player, and at 14 million, according to Transfer Market. I think that's a, a great sign. And then of course the best signing of the best signing of the summer for me, Joe Hart and a free transfer. Just incredible business from Tottenham. So yeah, I, I think Tottenham should have enough to finish fifth. And I think losing Walker-Peters and Jan Vertonghen isn't the end of the world. And again, we've been watching the Amazon documentary and it's very clear having watched kind of the first six episodes of the series that Mourinho is trying to, trying to instill this siege mentality that was so obvious at Chelsea and so obvious kind of at other clubs he's managed. And if like, if he gets that right, and if they start to buy into that, it could work to his benefit. But again, who knows Callum who is making fourth position for you? So yeah, in, in
1: fourth, I've gone with Arsenal and I kind of already said that I think what Arteta is doing at Arsenal, is, uh, I really, really actually like what he's doing. Um, kind of think we saw in the community shield that he kind of can set up his team to kind of nullify the, the top teams in the league. And for me, I don't think that's something Arsenal have had in recent years, if you kind of look back just off the top of my head, like some of the Liverpool results, they were getting absolutely smashed and it was because they were still kind of in that mindset that they was a top team and that they could attack these teams. But I think Arteta's coming with a realization that Arsenal do have to do something different against the top teams in order to get a result. But, I also think the, the young talent coming through Arsenal at the moment is superb, obviously. Uh, they've got Mikayo Saka, who's amazing. They've got Gabriel Martinelli. They've got Eddie, Eddie Nketiah, uh, Joe Wilson. Um, and then, as you said already, William Saliba is a great signer at centre-back, I think. Um, they they signed Pablo Mari, who, I mean, he's is, is good to cover. Um, and I just like what Arteta's doing. I think Arteta's kind of instilling this winning, uh, winning mentality into the Arsenal team that, that they kind of haven't had. They, that I think they have all kind of thought over recent years. That when we are not winning anything, whereas Arteta's come in obviously won two trophies in less than half a season, really. Um, so I think I think Arsenal will, will be really strong this year, um, and I just think that their their team has improved, um, whereas kind of Manchester United haven't. And I think Manchester United can kind of will kind of see that they need improvements in that team if they want to really push on.
0: Yeah, I think the reason I've gone Manu over Arsenal is I think Manchester United have a higher high ceiling and whether or not Arteta or Solskjaer is the better manager out of those two, I feel like United players probably just about drag them into the top four. Um, and again, Manu a a fourth for me and I think kind of having Dean Henderson back at the club, having Marcus Rojo back at the club, apparently he's, the Arsenal time is really impressed. Solskjaer since returning, he's been doing double training sessions since returning from loan from kind of an Argentinian club. Um, I think they lack a lot of balance. I really do. I I am quite worried about United. I just think they have enough quality to see them through, which is quite regressive in terms of analysis. But I think they'll probably have just enough. Um, With United, the thing to watch out for is the battle for the number one shirt. I, I hate, I hate what they're doing with goalkeepers at Manchester United. I feel like you either back David De Gea by loaning Dean Henderson out and you say, David, this is your last year, kind of make it a special one. Or you say, David, thanks so much for your services to the club. Goodbye now, we'll, we'll let you let you leave it, like in this summer. I don't think it makes sense to have Dean Henderson, who is one of England's best goalkeepers, although kind of remove that logic from the conversation anyway. Dean Henderson was one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League last year. It doesn't matter that he's English. It makes no sense to have him on the bench. And it looks like you're going to have Dean Henderson starting on the bench this year, which is just ridiculous. And again, if if the situation was the the other way around, I'd say the same thing. If Dean Henderson was starting the season and David De Gea was on the bench, that is the worst example of squad management ever. Because you look at football clubs, uh, I make this kind of um, comparison a lot, but whatever the team's budget is, is essentially their salary cap. Manchester United spend, what, 200 grand a week, I'd guess, 150 grand a week on David De Gea. You could, you could get a backup goalkeeper for 50 grand a week and spend an extra 100 grand a week elsewhere on your squad and strengthen another position, whether that be a backup or a new central defender, a younger central defender, whatever it might be, and I just think it's a horrible use of kind of resources to have Henderson, who signed a new contract. So, again, he's going to be on more money as well, and De Gea at the club. Callum... Who is going to finish third under your arithmetic?
1: Um, For me, I I can't see that top two really broken. Uh, And As much as I really, 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 really like Chelsea's business, um, they've got a 40-point gap to close on Liverpool, um, which in a season is massive. And I think even though Liverpool haven't strengthened, I think there's, as you kind of said about tactics, there's sometimes too much of a good thing. And I think Chelsea have strengthened in mass. And I think the fact that they brought in so many new players, it will take a while for the team to gel. Um, and I'll go into actually a bit more detail in terms of what I actually think will happen. I, I think I think Chelsea will struggle at the start. And to be honest, I think with the amount that they spend, um, I think Roman Abramovich will probably sack Frank Lampard by Christmas, purely because I don't think they'll get off to a, to a flying start, and I think he'll be expecting Frank Lampard to be challenging for a title this year. Um, I mean, there's there's no hiding my love for Kai Havertz. I mean, I think he's one of the best players, uh, young players in the world, and to be honest, I think he'll go on to win a Ballon d'Or. Um, he's that good. Um, so I think the fact they've got here is a, a massive coup. Um, but... Like, they they bought so many attacking players uh, from various different leagues as well. That if you're going to throw them all in at once, uh, it's going to be tough for them to gel. And obviously, they haven't got the options to fall back into because obviously, they let William go on a free, and Pedro has also gone. So, two of the like the two people in a Chelsea team that have been there for many years and know what the Premier League is about have kind of gone. So, they haven't got them people to fall back onto. So if, say, if Zijek doesn't start off uh, as you expect, then we've got Mason Mount, who's been great. But apart from Mason Mount, who else have you got, really? There's no one that immediately springs to mind. Callum hudson Odoi, but he hasn't exactly sat the, uh, the league on fire since he got his new contract. And then, as I said, this is, base- this is based off of the transfers happening now. Kepa, for me, is still a massive worry. And even though they've got Thiago in, And I think Thiago will really assure that defence. There's still players from that Chelsea team last year who know what Kepa's like and know that uh, there's going to be a lack of confidence in that team. So I think for me, if Chelsea need to sort out the the goalkeeper situation massively, and then once again, kind of what you said about Manchester United, I think it kind of links to Chelsea as well. There, There seems to be, if you look at their team, there is a massive lack of balance in that team. and. People really don't know how I think Frank Lampard's going to kind of set up this year because there's talk that obviously you could play Kovačić, um, who provides a little bit more of defensive mindset in the midfield, but is he going to really sacrifice either like Havertz or Ziyech from Kovačić? So his midfield three could be once again really, really attacking, and from watching Havertz at, um, at Leverkusen. He's great going forward and can play at various different positions across the front line. He can play as a 10, he can play as a 9, play on either wing. His defensive output isn't actually amazing. So if you're going to rely on a midfield three of, of, of what Havertz, Ziyech, and for the life of me, I can't think of the third. But it's a bit worrying, um, which is why I think okay, they've kind of been linked with Declan Rice, because they need someone that will be happy to sit back as kind of like an anchor man and just kind of sweep up the loose balls and get the team on the front foot. But at the moment, I think that midfield balance is a worry.
0: We disagree on Chelsea quite a lot, but we'll we'll get to my take on Chelsea later. Um, third place for me, this is going to give a lot away. Is Manchester City, which again is is slightly rogue, but we'll go there anyway. Um, I I look at there are kind of I just have a I have a bad feeling about Manchester City. And a lot of it comes from that defeat against Leon. And I just look at them and I think Leon aren't that good. Like, they've got good players, they're they're an okay Champions League team, but they're not amazing. Like like worst teams have beaten Leon. I think Rangers played a pre kind of a pre-tournament friendly against Leon and, and held their own. Um, and I just think with Manchester City, especially with not signing Lionel Messi, which obviously has, has hit the new cycle as well. We've not mentioned that. Um, I, I just look at them. And I just feel like that. I feel like they're missing something. And I, I, kind of, my feeling about the top of the Premier League this year is this is going to be a lower quality season than we've seen before in terms of the top ranking teams. And you talk about there being a forty point gap between Chelsea and Liverpool last season. Yeah, um, but I think Chelsea might gain twenty points, and I think Liverpool City will lose twenty points. Is is my opinion? I think there's going to be so much more movement in terms of the league this year, and so the reason I've got Manchester City in third is Aguero's fitness concerns me a little bit. I mean, he's becoming more injury prone as he gets older. Um, they've signed Torres from Valencia, who's a great player, and he's going to go on to do really good things. But he's probably not going to start this year. So I can't really consider that as something that's massively strengthened in their team. The other one they've signed is Nathan Ake for £40 million from Bournemouth. And again, I will I kind of bang on a lot about leftwood since the back's kind of off air. Um But Nathan Aki is an interesting player, but I don't think he's probably going to start. And again, it's like, are you strengthening or are you adding depth? And Man City already had a lot of depth. Is this the end of the road for Pep Guardiola in England? Maybe. Could we get to a situation where halfway through the season he says, yeah, I'm not going to sign a new contract. This is the end. Where does the motivation come from? Um, Ultimately, I, I just don't feel warm and fuzzy inside about Man City
1: yeah um, I, I kind of get you um i'll kind of we'll go for the top one now because obviously there's only two teams left so i've actually got man city winning the league so we kind of clearly think very differently um i get your point about nathan ake but for me it's definitely a depth thing um you saw a lot last year when laporte was missing that pep guardiola really 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 struggled with his tact uh, his tactics because he didn't have a left center back being able to play the balls out from the back and I think the fact that they brought in Nathan Ake, who clearly is happy to sit on the bench and be the replacement for Laporte when needed, is quite good for Pep Guardiola's tactics. It allows them to play the out a little bit more. And they aren't having to um, use Fernandinho at centre-back in that case. And obviously, if you're not using Fernandinho at centre-back, you're allowing him to be in his best position, where he probably excelled as one of the best centre-defensive mids in the world uh, a couple of seasons ago. So I really think that's a really great signing. Um, and I really like Ferran Torres as well. I think he's a great winger, really, really young. And I think, I think he'll be a, a, a pretty good replacement for Sane. I, think, I, think, I do think losing Sane is a massive blow to Man City, but I don't think Pep Guardiola rated him as much as people outside of the club did because Sane wasn't ever really a first-choice player apart from maybe the first season he came in but he wasn't ever really in favour with Pep Guardiola. So I think Ferran Torres will kind of play that similar role to Sani, that it will come in when um, Manchester City need an injection of pace down the wing. Um, The only thing that I... uh, There's two things, actually, I think, that as much as I do think City will win the league, uh, I don't think it'll be comfortable, but um, I'll kind of go into Liverpool a bit more in a minute, is I think two things worry me is, one, they've let Claudio Bravo go, and I think that means that Scott Carson is now their backup goalkeeper. So Scott Carson's well, Scott Carson wasn't a bad goalkeeper, but he hasn't really played much professional football um, recently. And Edison has, on occasion, been injured or on occasion being red-carded, which leaves um, Manchester City in the need to use their reserve goalkeeper, very much like the Alisson situation with Adrian last season. And is Carson a better second choice goalkeeper, than Adrian? Absolutely no chance at his age. That could be a real, a real worry. So I think, I think Manchester City probably need to address that in the transfer market, getting in a second choice goalkeeper. And that's easier said than done. I had this conversation with people on Twitter the other day. I think picking, picking a backup players is really hard anyway, but picking up a backup goalkeeper is exceptionally hard because I think a lot of goalkeepers really want to play first team football. Um, and then the other thing that worries me, it's kind of. I think it's because of what happened to uh, to Man City when Vincent Company left. They're losing a massive leader in their dressing room, David Silva, and David Silva. I mean, somehow got into the team of the year <laughs> for last night. I mean, he's a great player, but did he deserve that? No. But they're they're replacing him with Phil Foden, and Phil Foden's obviously a great player, but is he a leader on the pitch and off the pitch? No. So I think that could massively affect them, um, but. I do think their team is still really strong. I mean, Liverpool kind of walked the league last year, but they it wasn't without some sort of luck. Man City got quite a few injuries, whereas Liverpool kind of went the season with only a few injuries. Maybe Alisson was the biggest loss, um, but Man City definitely had far more. But yeah, kind of looking at Liverpool, because obviously I think a lot of people would say they are the closest rivals to Man City in terms of the league um i said this to you at the end of last week part of me has this really really horrible feeling that liverpool could end up in a situation like leicester like chelsea in 2013-14 after 2013-14 season where they kind of fall off completely and fall out of the top four um that's purely because they haven't strengthened their team and it wouldn't be as much of a worry if we'd have gone out and spent loads last summer. But we're now having two seasons in a row where we're going to have the same players on the uh, in the dressing room, same players on the pitch. The only thing that I think is really interesting with Liverpool, and it's kind of filled me with a lot of hope that we will do well this season, um, apart from my obvious scepticism, because I'm always quite sceptical about Liverpool, is... Um, is the fact that klopp seems to be switching up his formation he seems to be moving away from a 4-3-3 into more of a 4-2-3-1 which is it's actually really interesting when you watch it i mean against arsenal community shield they was our best spells in the game when we was playing in that formation um in both the games against salzburg and blackpool i mean they're not superb opposition but we played far better in that in with that system And it gives Firmino the kind of license to drop back into a role he was playing at Hoffenheim. And also Minamino. Minamino looks like the player we knew he was getting in him when he's playing in that number 10 role. And it means that we kind of have to have a double pivot uh, at at the back. And obviously there are reports that Gini Aldum, who is kind of vital to Liverpool's current system, going to Barcelona. But... We played Naby Keita in, in a double pivot with Curtis Jones the other day, and it's a lot more aggr- aggressive and progressive football from Liverpool. And that is that is the true part of Liverpool games that is really exciting. They're a really good attacking team. So if they're going to implement a, a tactical system that allows them to press onto the front foot, then it fills me with more hope than kind of sticking with that 4 system, which was kind of... It was great, it won us a league, but it wasn't as like exciting and definitely wasn't as we, we weren't doing things that were unexpected. Um a lot of the time people knew that the balls would come from out wide, whereas kind of this new system allows you to create from the middle and kind of take some emphasis away from both Robertson and Trent. So I think that fills me with hope, but I, I just think, yeah, I think Liverpool have missed an opportunity to strengthen that
0: team. So I think we
1: will see Mazzy take their crown back. From the
0: champions so for people including myself who haven't watched Liverpool during pre-season is is it right that Klopp is going to go 4 3 one back four of Robertson Gomez Van Dijk Trent double pivot probably of Cater and Henderson with your front four being Mane Minamino and Salah behind the striker with Firmino up front is that kind of the vibe we're going for yeah that, that, that's what it looks like um, Obviously.
1: If we'll wait to see if Henderson is back from an um, injury, but it definitely looks like that at the moment.
0: And I mean, we said we said this, well, I said this a couple of weeks ago, like Minamino can't play on the right. I think we said this at the start of the podcast. He's a, he's a number 10. He likes playing behind the striker. So the idea of having someone like him play on the right-hand side as a replacement for Salah was just never going to be a starter, to be honest, especially considering that Firmino drops into that space. So, yeah, I think the idea of Liverpool playing 4-2-3-1 is interesting. The only thing I'd counteract with that is the fact that City switched from 4-3-3 to 4-2-3-1 kind of at the start of last season. And a big reason why their press wasn't as good was because kind of defensively that shape didn't work as well. Kind of the number 10 for for Manchester City didn't work as well as having kind of someone sitting in front of the defence with two midfielders in front of them. Um, we've got an interesting article on that kind of in the first edition of the ball as well. So have a look at that if if you like. Um, but yeah, no, that, I, I think that's interesting. I went for Liverpool in second um, simply because you haven't bought anyone. I mean, you've got um, Simikas, the Greek left back from Olympiakos. I hope I've said that somewhere in, in the region of being correct. But yeah, I mean, he looks like a decent player. But again, he's not going to get in, in the team in front of Robertson you needed the backup left back and that is essentially what he is. I think that's why he's signing, but you need more. Um, I think Liverpool, this will be the most idiotic thing in the world. If Liverpool do not sign Tiago, I think that would be ridiculous Um, because I think it makes sense for all parties because it makes sense to sell one Alden to Barcelona. So we can go and play for Ronald Koeman. And it makes sense to bring Tiago in so we can play alongside kind of someone like Henderson in the heart of that kind of Liverpool midfield. Um, The final point on Liverpool, I would say as well, is the fact that Klopp's style of football under a number of seasons is unsustainable. We saw it at Borussia Dortmund where it broke down. after. And the thing is, I love Jürgen Klopp. We saw at Borussia Dortmund it started to break down towards the end of his tenure. And again, that was personnel issues as well. And I just feel like with the congested fixture list that we've got this season, it will be so, so difficult for Liverpool to remain at the level they were previously especially if you're kind of looking to compete in the Champions League, in the FA Cup, in the Carabao Cup as well. I, I just feel like it's going to be lower quality at the top end of the table this year. There, there has to be a slip. And I think City, Liverpool will both finish on more points uh, on less points. And the team to finish on more points will be the new Premier League champions, Chelsea. Um, and let me explain why. So that welcome to my TED Talk. Um, I'm wor- First of all, I'm working on the assumption that Chelsea sign a new goalkeeper, and they're close to signing Mendy from Stad Ren at the moment. So I think that'll be interesting. Chelsea for me are going to go 4 2 3 1. They're going to have either Aspel Equator or Ruth James at, at right back. Then you've got Tiro Silva with one of Tamori Zuma, Rudiger, or Christensen at centre back, with Chihuahua at left back. Double pivot for me at this point in time is Kovacic and Kante with the three behind the striker being Ziyech, Havertz and Pulisic. Up front, you have Timo Werner. I just look at that team and I think if winning the Premier League this year is closer to 80 points than it is 100, I think Chelsea could get there. And, of course, if if Liverpool don't drop off, and my prediction is predicated on the idea, on the idea that Liverpool and Manchester City get worse. If that doesn't happen, Chelsea aren't going to win the league. But if they do get worse, I think Chelsea have a genuine opportunity to break in to the top two and kind of well, make it a top three rather than just a top two as we've seen over recent years. And again, what I would say as well is they've shifted to kind of older players from the squad who were were fiercely unpopular on social media. Um, they brought in the younger players last year. They now have more experience. So I just feel like this Chelsea team kind of logically should be better this year they've got the hallmarks of being a better team this year. And I feel like they might have enough to challenge Um, in terms of their first five fixtures. They have Brighton away, Liverpool at home, West Brom away, and then back-to-back home fixtures against Crystal Palace and Southampton. They could potentially win four of their first five matches. And if they get a decent result against Liverpool, I feel like the narrative around this Chelsea team could change drastically. At the same time, they could lose to Brighton, lose to Liverpool, and then then we're having a very different conversation about Frank Lampard's team. And again, I think one of the big question marks is, is Frank Lampard good enough? Because again, he did okay last year, but I don't think he set the world on fire. Again, I think Dan spoke about this the last time he was on the podcast too. So yeah, I think I think Chelsea could be a really interesting team to watch this year. Um, before we do the bottom three, the teams who are going to be relegated, Um, we haven't discussed this before the show, but I thought I'd I'd fire it on you anyway, Callum. Who's going to win the Golden Boot in
1: 2020-21? Who do I think will win the Golden Boot? That is a tough question, because obviously Vardy and Ings had great seasons this year, will they carry on? Not sure myself. Um, You know what, I'll I'll go with Aguero. Aguero winning one last golden before boot
0: before he leaves. I think that's that's not a terrible pick. It with with Man City players, it always just depends on how much they're in the starting lineup, doesn't it? Because obviously Guardiola likes to switch things around. Um, I I want to say Timo Werner, although this this is I said this again the other day. Um, Chelsea just have this horrible record of ruining strikers. Or strikers going to Chelsea and just not fulfilling their potential. And Timo Werner is someone who should succeed in this team, especially if they play a counter attacking style when it's just a case of getting Timo Werner in behind and he will punish defences. Um, if it's not Werner, I think Aguero would be probably where the smart money is at. If not, maybe a United player could do it. But yeah, I think there's lots of really interesting players in the league this year. And I think, I really hope it's more interesting for the neutral because. The last couple of years, as exciting and as exhilarating as this two-horse race has been, it's 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 kind of grown a little bit stout, and I think the personal rivalry between Guardiola and Klopp has started to lose some of that fizz, and I feel like if you bring another team into the equation, it could make it a little bit more interesting for the neutral. Um, I feel like we should probably look towards the bottom three now, the, the most exciting element of the Premier League um, table. Callum, who... I don't know if you've done this in order of kind of twentieth to nineteenth and so on and so forth. I have got, I've got,
1: a, I've got a, a full list of teams. So if we want to go through um, twentieth up to eighteenth, feel like twentieth. I think we're both probably going to have the same team here. Um I've gone Fulham. Um, I think I, I do actually quite like Fulham. I don't. Uh, I think they're a good team, and I think Scott Parker is a good manager. Uh, I think he can. He's got he's got his tactics spot on and I think in the kind of you saw that in the uh, playoff final that he, he kind of set up a tactic and knows how to win games. But I just don't think there's a quality in the Fulham side and kind of like looking through their um the, their transfers this year. I mean Mario Lamina's good. Uh, I actually really like Mario Lamina. I think he I, I think he should have got more game time at Southampton, but there's probably a reason he hasn't got game time at Southampton. Um and then the only other one is Harrison Reid, who is a youngster from Southampton. So they haven't really in, introduced anyone into their squad with big quality.
0: Yeah, I've also got Fulham to go down 20F, And that really hurts because I really, really like Scott Parker. He's someone that I hope has a really good managerial career. But I, I'm just looking at, at the players that have signed and it's quite hard to be enthusiastic. Like, they've got players back from Lyon who might make a difference. Like, maybe that, that, that could be a positive impact. Uh, but but whether or not it kind of happens for Fulham remains to be seen. And again, they've signed knockout on a permanent deal. They've got Harrison Reed from Southampton. They've got Lamina also from Southampton. And the player that's most interesting for me is Anthony Robinson, uh, Robinson rather, from, from Wigan Athletic, the left back. Um, he's a good player, but again, Fulham already have a good left back, don't they? And it's just a case of saying, well, how much has this team strengthened? I feel like we have gone... Too far the other way. When they were promoted two seasons ago, they spent too much money, and they were relegated because the team just didn't come together. And this year, I feel like they might not have spent enough money, and they're going to go down under an unexperienced manager. I, I don't really have a lot to say about Fulham because it just makes me a little bit sad, really, because I, I really wanted them to do well, and I, I like them in the Championship. And I think, to be honest, I think Fulham are the kind of team that are going to bounce back up if they come down. I feel like they're well positioned to be that yo-yo club now. And whether or not that's good enough for supporters remains to be seen. But yeah, that's kind of where my head is at at the moment. Callum, who have you got in 19th position?
1: So this is where we might disagree. Well, we could actually agree. It really depends on how you're feeling about your club. Because I've got West Ham in 19th, I think. I mean, this week has been an awful week for the club. Um, obviously, Grady Dean Garner, who is probably one of West Ham's brightest young talents and was someone that had excited the whole team, including Sebastian Haller, who had freely admitted that he was looking forward to playing with Grady Dean Garner this year, who had supplied him, uh, what was it, three or, three or five assists? I can't really remember. Um, but the fact that you've let him go and your, your wingers on the left side this this season look like they're going to be Felipe Anderson who has not hit the heights that anybody expected uh Manuel Lanzini who has just tailed off completely um ever since that kind of uh, world cup injury that he got or Pablo Fornals who is not a winger in the slightest he's not quick enough to play on the wing and to be honest he once again he he looked like he was going to be a great player when he first came to West Ham and kind of got hyped up but he's not lived up to the heights and then your defence is woeful. I mean, you lost 5 3 or 5 2 to Bournemouth um, in a preseason friendly. I know it is preseason friendly, but you're going into fifth season in a row with Cresswell and Masawaka as your left back choices. And your right back choices are not great. I mean, Ben Johnson's all right. Uh, but apart from that, there's no one there. It's a DOP. I mean, <laughs> you probably should have cashed in on DOP last year when Man United came calling for him. He hasn't looked like the same player at all. And to me, I think the only only couple of players that really excite me in that West Ham side are Sucek and Declan Rice, which says a lot about the West Ham team because I mean, then they're, they're not well. They are great players, but they're not attacking players. They're they're quite defensive in their mindsets. Um, and I, I really think that if you lose Declan Rice to Chelsea, as it's kind of rumoured that they're going to come in for him, you will 100% be going down, because Declan Rice is probably the only player that has the ability to kind of single-handedly keep you up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't really disagree with anything you've said. Right? Well, I disagree with some of the stuff. I also have West Ham going down in 90th position. Um, on, on the Grady Diancarna point, and again, I keep public, uh, I keep kind of promoting my articles and articles that I've edited Um, I just wrote an article about Dian Angana's departure from West Ham for World Football Index um, in which I include an extended quote from Sebastian Haller after the Ipswich Town win, West Ham I think won 4-1 against Ipswich a couple of weeks ago Um, this was just like a week before Dian Angana was sold, he said to West Ham TV we can feel satisfied about the result of course we still have some work to do but it's important to start with good standards and to perform as a team we need, to, we need to perform our individual duties, and so it was nice to score three goals. It is my job to score, and believe, and we believe we can be better. It's nice for us to have a kind of player like Grady. Everyone knows the quality he has, and he went online to West Brom, and everyone knows he performed pretty well. We're all happy to have him here, and we're going to try to use his quality and strength well, me most of all. Hopefully, he'll be giving me even more assists in the future. Seven days later... Grady I left the club. Um, yeah, where do we, where do we even start with West Ham? I just this this transfer really annoyed me. There's not much that the club can do that really annoys me at this point because they've kind of they've kind of perfected the art. Um but as you say, West Ham's attacking unit to end the season. That we were playing 4 2 3 1 to end the year. We had Pablo Fournals on the left. He's a number 10, he's very slow, and he doesn't like crossing. Go figure. We were playing Gerald Bowen on the right, who is perfectly fine. That's that's the correct decision. That's where he should be playing. That's fine. He's he's a good winger. In the number 10 position, we have Mark Noble um, as some kind of homage to the Italian ganch, which just made me want to pull my eyes out. And then up front, we have Mikel Antonio. And again, I don't have an issue with Mikel Antonio playing up front. I think he's, he's a limited player in the sense that he relies a lot on physical aspects and he relies a lot on beating people one-on-one more so with his ability to win a foot race than his ability to dribble past people. That's not necessarily a criticism because when we purchased Antonio, we knew what kind of player he was and has continued to be. I really like him, but he's not the polished footballer that you kind of associate with being a Premier League striker. And, you just think about this and everyone uh, kind of attached to West Ham, involved with West Ham was kind of signifying that, well, Dian Garner's is going to be back in the team this year. David Gold kind of a few weeks ago, when when there was lots of pressure on, on West Ham's board to sign players, posted a picture on his Twitter account of Grady Dian Garner in West Ham training as if to say, yeah, we've got this young, exciting player coming through. He's going to be a feature of the team this year. It didn't have a caption, but that was that was basically the implication. And we've sold a 22-year-old left winger who is skillful and good in the transition and is quick and looks really promising to a divisional rival for potentially up to 18 million pounds. And you compare that to the business that that QPR did with, with Crystal Palace. They sold Eze to Crystal Palace for 20 million pounds. And again, there were fees involved kind of further fees involved there as well. And that's, that's quite hard to reconcile because I could accept as a West Ham fan. I could accept. I accept selling players. It's a fact of life. What I struggle to accept is selling young prospects who have been at the club for a decade. He's been at the club since he was twelve. For peanuts to a team that are potentially going to be really close to us in the table, that's quite upsetting. Because he was. He was the. And again, this is such a cliche, but it's kind of true in this example. Him coming back from loan would have felt like a new signing because he had all the characteristics that West Ham were missing towards the end of last season. Um, Felipe Anderson since joining West Ham has been absolute just rubbish. He's 36 million quid worth a player. And he's just not delivered. Whenever he gets the ball, he looks to go backwards. He has lost the spark for whatever reason that he had at Lazio. And Dean Garner would have been great to have in the team. And he's, he's gone, which is pretty depressing. And again, you talk about West Ham and the club as a whole has some really pressing issues to contend with, and again, I think it, it took Mark Noble twenty-seven minutes following Dean Garner's departure to tweet, "As captain of this football club, I'm gutted, angry, and sad that Grady has left. Great kid with a great future." And then he finishes his tweet with five exclamation marks. Um, so clearly, he feels quite quite strongly about that. Mark Noble, the wordsmith, as always, and I just feel like the dressing room must be. Not in a good way at this point in time, because there were a number of players, Jack Wilshere also spoke out, Declan Rice and Robert Snodgrass liked Mark Noble's tweets. It's just a weird situation for a team to be in, kind of a week before the start of the Premier League season. And again, in preparation for the podcast, I looked at a lot of predictions by other people that they've made. And I think it was the iMagazine predictions. Most of the pundits had West Ham either fourth bottom or in the bottom three. And... West Ham have been in the Premier League I think six years at this point since being re-promoted to the top flight under Sam Allardyce and we were promised the next level and simply we've got kind of next level nonsense instead. And again, four years ago in 2016, Mark Noble proclaimed that this club ain't run like a circus anymore and the circus truly is kind of back in town at this point. Anything to add, Callum, on West Ham?
1: No, I I think you kind of covered it. I mean... That was kind of part of my thinking, anyway. That I think the club, off the pitches is is in a shambles anyway. And I think the atmosphere that, that uh, the yeah, the atmosphere that could bring to the team is is kind of partly why I put them down there. Especially if the team do get off to a bad start and uh, GSB decide they want to sack David Moyes again, there, It's not something that would surprise me anymore because that they do just love to sack managers.
0: I, I don't actually agree with that. Um, throughout their time at West Ham, they've shown a reluctance to sack managers. Um, they had Avram Grant, who was very clearly going to get us relegated and, and they didn't sack him until after we were relegated. They they didn't leave in Slavan Bilic and kept him for another six months. And I think the only one who they were slightly trigger happy with was Manuel, pa- uh, Manuel Pellegrini. And again, I think that's because they'd already lined up Moise to replace him. Uh, my worry is they might keep boys for too long because if you look at West Ham's fixtures, we play Newcastle United to start the season, and then then the run after that is awful. It's like Arsenal, Wolves, Tottenham, and then we play in the run into December in at the end of October we play Liverpool, and Manchester City back to back, and we could potentially start November having not won a game. And of course, every team runs that risk, but um, it's it's not filling me with a lot of confidence and again we haven't signed anyone this summer the only person kind of to come in is Thomas Suchek as a permanent signing and I think he's a great player he's he's not going to be at West Ham next season if we go down he's far too good um yeah it's a bit concerning one of the only players I'm actually quite excited and happy to see back at the club um is Josh Cullen he's now 24 years of age which is quite surprising because he's always been this hot prospect for for what seems like the past five years um, and he might finally get an opportunity in the first team. Um, unfortunately, I feel like he'll get his opportunity in the first team, we'll get relegated, and then it will be part of the squad that kind of tries to bring us back into the Premier League. But yeah, there's there's not much to be optimistic about. And again, looking at the out, we've sold Albion Ejeti to, to Celtic for for £5 million. We sold Jordan Hugel to Norwich for £3 million. They're huge losses on decent assets to be fair not not terrible assets and no, it's it's just quite sad what's what's going on at West Ham I don't don't have much um more to add at this point Callum who else is going to be joining West Ham United in the championship next season
1: um so, yeah before this is the final one but uh I think after we'll quickly go through um, 7th to 17th very, very quickly, kind of not in much detail. But the, the, yeah, the final team I've got going down, I, I said it last week and I'm sticking by that, Crystal Palace. Um, they scored 31 goals in the Premier League last season, which is less than a goal a game. And if you keep up that record, you aren't going to remain in the Premier League. They, they've signed Eze, who is a good player, but is yet to probably prove himself in the Premier League. And you don't know if he will. And is Ben Teke again, or Wilfred Zaha going to step up to score the goals this season? Probably not. Um, they've signed Nathan Ferguson, who is a good player again. Uh, looks like a good defender. But I just don't think Crystal Palace have strengthened enough. And I actually believe some of the teams around them have strengthened. Or Newcastle have strengthened really well. Um, Aston Villa uh, today signed Ollie McBurney from... Um, not Ollie Watkins <laughs> from uh, Brentford, uh, who looks like a great striker um even though they maybe paid a little bit over the odds in my opinion um but for me I, do, I just don't think crystal palace have strengthened and if you kind of look at the teams that come up I, I i've said it before i think leeds will do well this season and i think west brom i really like slavin village i really like Slaven village when he's at west ham and i really like what he's doing with west brom and um i think being was was that kind of key to his tactical setup last year so the fact that he's got him back at west Brom, i think it could save them from relegation
0: yeah um, I actually agree. I think uh, I did a podcast a couple of days ago um that's coming out on Sunday where they where they asked me like, who's going to go down? And I, I said Newcastle, but this was before they had kind of players come into the club. and I'm so impressed by Newcastle's business. They've signed like Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser. um yeah, they're not going down they have they've, they've got too much talent. And I actually agree. I think Crystal Palace might be the side to go down. I've thought about this quite long and hard. I'm agonizing between. Um, Crystal Palace and Brighton for some reason. Um, Palace just, as you said, didn't score enough goals. They signed Eze, who I think will be a good player, but maybe a little bit too soon to be kind of a mainstay figure in a Premier League team that's hoping to kind of have have decent aspirations. But I, I was quite torn on this. I struggled to pick between Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, um, West Brom, Brighton and even Burnley to be honest because Burnley haven't really signed anyone. Um, I know this is a little bit kind of fence sitting but yeah I wouldn't be surprised if Crystal Palace stayed up but I also wouldn't be surprised if they went down. Yeah Crystal Palace could be in a little bit of bother. So Callum I feel like now is the time to run through from 7th down to 17th. Who have you got kind of starting 7th, 8th, 9th and 10th?
1: Yeah so if I just run through mine and you can kind of challenge me if you really want. Um so in seventh, I've got Everton. I think uh, Carlo Ancelotti Everton. I think this will kind of be the season where we start to see the kind of Everton team where fans have expected for years. I think they've made a really nice uh, midfield trio. And I think as much as Dahamed Rodriguez has kind of dropped off massively since the like, 2014 World Cup of injuries, I think Ancelotti will get the best out of him. Um, in eighth, I've gone for Wolves. I think I think McDowell will be a massive loss to Wolves this season. Um, and I think... I think a lot of the the players are kind of getting to an age or kind of a mentality now where they'll start to get picked off by bigger clubs. And I think it could affect the mentality at Wolves. Um, Obviously, they haven't got European football this year, so it could be a strength enough for them in terms of fitness. Ninth, which could be a road shout, I've gone for Southampton. Uh, they've really impressed me under Hassan Uh After that drop in against Leicester last year, they've just massively improved. And if Danny Ian's going to hit the heights he did last year, che adams can kind of bring that form we brought after lockdown i think they'll do really well um in 10th i've gone for leads there's no there's no uh, hiding my opinion on leads i think they'll be really good this year i really like marcelo bielsa and, and i think i think they've done some really interesting business i mean they've replaced jack clark with jack harrison from man city who i really actually think is a really good player i think rodrigo is really interesting uh He's not, a, he's not a striker that scores goals, but he's really good at getting players into play and holding up the ball. And I think he'll be a great acquisition. They replaced Ben White with a, a, a defender from Germany called Robin Cott, um who is a great player. He's, he, he, to be honest, I think is a really, really nice signing. That, um, it costs about 13 million, but he's, I think he's, he's one of these players that I think he'll have a year in the Premier League and his price will skyrocket. And I don't think he's actually much worse than Ben White. And then 11th this is really i think very rogue but I'll, I'll explain a little bit more detail about this one so leicester city i've got an 11th um i think brendan rogers uh started to lose kind of the team a little bit last season and these tactics were a little bit uh far-fetched they've obviously lost their first choice left back in Ben Chilwell, and i think they've replaced him with this Castagna, who I, I've, I've watched a handful of times he looks all right but i mean he's not he's not exactly the quality of ben Chilwell, so i think leicester will really struggle and to be honest i think Brent, brendan rogers will be another manager who will lose his job uh this season i think Leicester will struggle to kind of hit the heights that they're expecting especially with an aging jamie vardy um so yeah i think leicester will finish 11th then sadly i've got sheffield united dropping down to 12th um i just think that post lockdown form will kind of come back in terms of what they was doing um dave Made some interesting signings. I mean, Bogle, Lowe and Ampadu will probably all be bench warmers. They'll probably come in as rotation players. They're good players, but they're not really improving the quality of the side. And I think Dean Henderson, this is a massive loss. I think I really like Ramsdale as a keeper, but they're kind of worlds apart in terms of quality. So I think it will be a massive loss for them and I think it could really impact them.
0: We agree on quite a lot, which I'm actually quite surprised about, considering how close I think a lot of the teams could be together and how many moving parts there are to this. So I agree: Everton seventh for me, Wolves eighth, Southampton ninth, and Leicester City in tenth. I think that was I pretty tenth.
1: yeah, yeah. So Leeds Le- and Leicester, Leicester. Leicester
0: were the only ones we disagreed with. Then, um and again, the uh, the only things I really need to add to what you've said, I think. I, I agree with everything you said about Everton. I think they've just done, outside of Chelsea, the best business in the league. Um, I find it ridiculous that they've got Ancelotti and, <laughs> and how much Roger That That doesn't make any sense. Um, Wolves, yeah, I, I agree entirely. I think they get into a stage where some of the best players are going to leave or agitate to leave, and I think that's going to have a negative impact. Southampton, we both really like hasn't at all there's not much more to say I think Leicester in 10th just because uh, to be honest I don't think Brendan Rodgers will see this season out given how they performed after Christmas I'm quite worried about them and I could have put them lower, and I I very almost did Um, and especially in Europe as well they've got they've got the Europa League and again I hate it when people talk about the Europa League in negative terms because I would absolutely love to watch West Ham play in the Europa League and I feel like for lots of people, especially in mainland Europe, the Europa League is still a big competition. You listen to people like Derek Ray talk about the, uh, the Europa League, and it's still a competition that teams should want to be in because it's, it is it is exciting. Um, for Leicester, it's going to be a huge drag because I, I, I just feel like fixture congestion is going to really hurt them. Um, this is where we start to deviate a little bit. I have Newcastle United in 11th. Um, they have done really good business. I, I mentioned Wilson... Um, Jamal Lewis, obviously coming in from Norwich city and also Ryan Fraser on a free transfer from, uh, Bournemouth. It's, it's interesting. I think a lot of those players as well would have expected to have gone to better teams. I think Jamal Lewis would have expected to go to a bigger team than Newcastle. Ryan Fraser was convinced that he was going to end up at Arsenal. Deal never kind of came to fruition. Um, and again, Callum Wilson probably would have thought a bigger team than Newcastle would have come in. So yeah, I'm so impressed by their business and this is from a from a chairman from an owner who actively wants to sell the club i find that quite spectacular and again i think that i think the rationale at newcastle is well if we stay in the premier league if we have a decent season the value of the club's going to go up and i know that's quite a um negative way to look at running a successful football club but i think ultimately at newcastle it is a money game and i think that's the strategy so i, th- I have them in 11th then in 12th place Sheffield United. um They can't sustain what they did last year. Um, quite simply, it's just not possible that they massively outperformed kind of the quality that they have. And losing Dean Henderson is huge. And Ramsdale is just nowhere near the level that he is. I, I can't believe Ramsdale for 18 million. Personally.
1: It is expensive. I don't. I don't hate Ramsdale as a keeper. I don't think he's awful, but he's definitely. I don't think he's eighteen million and I don't. I don't think he is the quality that uh, Sheffield United should have gone for when replacing Dean Henderson. I think. I think there's met far better keepers they probably could have got. I think they should have gone for Aaron Martinez, probably probably around the same price bracket. But yeah, I, I think we differ on Ramsdale a little bit. I don't think. I think you are a little bit maybe harsh, but I mean you probably have more experience about goalkeepers than than I do.
0: I just, he, he just strikes me as being a little bit shaky, to be honest. I just, I just don't have a lot of, it, 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 again, he doesn't, he doesn't make me feel great kind of thinking about it. Interesting kind of fact to, to go for. There there is another Ramsdale goalkeeper at Sheffield United who plays in the under twenty one. So there we go. Yeah, I think, I think Sheffield United will be all right. They won't be in the relegation conversation, but they're not going to be anywhere near Europe. Um A 13th, and this is going to upset you, Callum, I've gone to Leeds United um simply because well i've bottled this actually because i had them i think 10th and i thought newly promoted team untested kind of squad in the premier league they haven't they've signed some players but they've not signed lots and lots of players and i feel like 13th is harsh i hope and kind of expect them to finish higher but i didn't know who to pull down lower essentially it would have probably been Leicester and, and Newcastle. So yeah, I think Leeds will have an okay season. I don't think they're going to be in the relegation conversation for sure. Um, and at the end of the day, this season is about Bielsa for them. It's about can he lead them to that next level? Because again, this isn't this isn't a dissimilar team to the one that he inherited when they were pretty kind of average in the Championship. So it, it's a lot on the management side, and I think this is going to be one of the first times we truly get to see how far a good manager can take a team in the Premier League um, because they have to outpunch their weight category. And I'm I'm intrigued to see how well they do this year.
1: Yeah, um, see, we disagree um, in terms of Brighton, I'm gonna say, because I've got Brighton in 13th. I think I actually really like Graham Potter as a manager. I think he's really underrated. And I think some of the business they've done this this season isn't that bad. I think Lallana is a great acquisition. Um, he's he's kind of a leader in, in the dressing room, but he, he's also got quality. Like he showed that a couple of times last year when he came on against Man United for Liverpool, he was excellent. And if you can keep Lallana fit, he's a great addition to that team. And he suits uh, Grand Potter's system really, really well. And then... They've lost Montoya this season, uh, one of the right-backs, but they've signed Joel Veltman. And Joel Veltman, a quality signing, I think, again, I think I don't know how they've managed to pull that one off, but it's, it's a brilliant signing. And then their defence is just immediately strengthened by the return of Ben White, who they've managed to tie down to a new contract. I mean, there was a reason Leeds wanted him back, and there was teams such as Arsenal, such as Liverpool, sniffing around Ben White. He clearly got the quality, and I think he really improves, a, def- a really strong De Brighton defence anyway. A centre-back pairing of Lewis Duncan Ben White probably could play for England at one point, let, let alone Brighton. So I don't I, I don't think Brighton were in, in, in relegation scrap. And then in 14th, I've gone for Newcastle. And this is purely, I think, the bit as you said, the business they've done is amazing. But this is purely because I had, before this week, I had Newcastle going down. Um, I, I wasn't excited by their team. But obviously, Jamal Lewis is a great signing. Callum Wilson kind of... Um, nullifies their woes in terms of attacking bit uh output a little bit um but i don't think they're going to push on uh any higher than that i think they kind of have a similar season to last year and i don't think fans will be upset by that if they just remain in the prem and then looking at 15th i've gone for burnley um it, 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 as you said the shun dyke scenario could massively impact them if he starts to become unsettled and um, if they don't kind of back him in the transfer market and then his team starts to stutter. I think you could see Sean Deitch either leaving or being sacked, which could be massive because I don't think Burnley probably can get a better manager than Sean Deitch. But if we're going on the on the fact that Sean Deitch will remain through the season, I think Burnley will be safe and I think it'll be comfortable. And then just the last three, I've got Aston Villa, I think I think the signing of Oli Watkins is a great uh, is a great signing. And Aston Villa I think start I think they kind of start to in the Premier League a little bit more this season I think the fact they've been able to hold on to Jack Grealish is massive for the club and I don't think many people would have said that at the start of the transfer window and then final final team uh, is obviously West Brom Um, I think they'll be in a relegation scrap but I've kind of already said my piece on them I think Slavan's a great manager and I think that they'll be comfortable uh, in the end staying up.
0: I don't deviate too far from what you've said I had Birmingham 14th um, they finished, I think, 11 last year. But I I just see them slip in a few places. To be honest, I I just I feel like they they needed to sign some players, and they haven't. Um, Brighton in 15th. Um, again, I quite like Brighton. I think they'll they'll do okay. Um, I just worry about the number of goals they might score, because as you say, they've got a really good defense. They've signed Veltman. They've got Ben White back. Um, How many goals they score remains to be seen. Obviously, they sold Aaron Moy as well to China. I think he's gone to the Super League. Um, So, yeah, I think Brighton will do okay. But, again, I don't think they're going to set the world on fire. Aston Villa in 16th. And, again, I was more worried about Aston Villa until they made a couple of signings this week. They've signed Watkins. I think they've brought in a couple of other players too. Um, I feel like they're they're, um, trading water under the current management. I feel like they need... And again, this is quite harsh because he did lead them to safety last year under quite kind of personally tragic circumstances. Um, I'm not sure how far Dean Smith can take this team. And so, yeah, that's that's why I have them towards the bottom end of the table. And then staying up just about, I have West Brom. Um, to be honest, I'll I'll put all my cards on the table here. I really was very close to putting them in the bottom three, kind of very, very close. So I feel like I might be letting my kind of snap on village bias seep out a little bit um yeah i can't really explain this because i feel like they probably should be relegated if i'm being totally honest i don't think they've they've added that many players however um yeah i i i, I hope they stay up essentially i know that's not very analytical but i think Grady, mm. as, as we've said i think grady d'angana in that team is a huge plus because neither slavan nor david Moyes thought the transfer was going to happen until it did yeah um and I think that kind of changes the mood both at the Hawthorns and the London Stadium. Yeah, I,
1: I also just think uh, Keepre is, is a good signing as well. He kind of proved himself at uh, Championship. And I, I don't think he'll be awful. I, I, they haven't lost anyone from their team um, of note, which sometimes you kind of do when you're coming up as a Championship side. Sometimes players get picked off by the bigger Premier League clubs. But I think I just think West Brom will be comfortable. I think Slavang proved himself. Um, as a Premier League manager during that season with West Ham where you kind of defied all the expectations and was going for a Champions League spot at one point, which is uh, a yonder year now. But um yeah, I think they'll be comfortable.
0: I think we have slightly different... And again, I think it's partly because I had a season ticket at the time, but I think we have slightly different perspective on, on how good Slavvan Bilic is. Although 2016 was kind of the best year to be a West Ham supporter... The fall-off after that was was pretty horrible to see. And even though I don't think that was Bilic's fault, I, I still am adamant that if we signed William Carvalho to... It, it, basically, Carvalho was the player that he really, really wanted to play defensive midfield. And he said for years, like, I don't have a defensive midfielder. say he's not a defensive midfielder. He likes to go box-to-box. Box. He moves around too much. Um, but, of course, he was picked as a defensive midfielder. I feel like if if we'd backed Slavon Bilic he would still be West Ham manager now. I just feel uncomfortable putting Bilic in the conversation as being one of the better managers in the league or or being kind of up there just because it got away from him at West Ham. And I feel like the emotional toll at West Ham was big. And again, you saw, everyone sees the video of of when we lost um, Dimitri Pye at the, the press conference where Bilic was like, yeah, Dimitri wants to go. And he, he looked like he could genuinely cry. Um I really hope it goes well for Bilic because I think he's just... He seems like a lovely bloke. And again, this is straying way, way far away from the analysis that I like to try and offer. Um, but yeah, I just... I, I desperately want them to stay up. I think I'm more concerned about Slavon Bilic than I... The thing is, this this, this as well, is they beat us in the FA Cup last year, didn't they, West Brom? And I can honestly say that I I, I kind of smiled a little bit, kind of made me a little bit happy the fact that Slavon Bilic had, had won the game just because the situation that faces West Ham. But yeah, I, I, I hope West Brom have enough.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think the fact that we also, um, both of us went to um, Slab's first game at West Ham together um, at Upton Park. in a friendly. Yeah. 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 Europa League. Yeah. 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 I think that kind of draws like this podcast is a little bit of uh, an allegiance to Slab because of that. Because <laughs> we've shared some memories of him together. But yeah, we- we'll see. I-, I think we'll come back to these. Uh, we've we'll come back to these predictions at the end of the season. And we'll have a laugh and be like, "Oh, why did we put them there? God, we're so predicted, or we might be geniuses and we might yeah. you know, we might have a career in predicting Premier League football."
0: The good thing is, though, is that we haven't actually deviated that far from one another. It's only that like, a couple of places in the top six, yeah. where we've gone with big differences in like the positions that matter. Um, of course, if Dan is if Dan returns from Scotland by the end of the season, <laughs> um, he'll just sit there and kind of have a chuckle at our expense, whatever happens, because he would have, of course, been correct. Um, <laughs> I think that pretty much rounds up the podcast. One thing I wanted to ask you about before we left. This is pretty random because it's just happened kind of at the time of recording. Reggie Cannon has signed for Boavista. Um how does that make you feel?
1: I well, you know, I won't say I know too much about it.
0: Fair enough. So I, I will do this piece. Um uh, Reggie Cannon, who uh FC Dallas right back has signed for Portuguese team Boavista for I think about three to five million Euros. He was, I think, one of the best right-backs in MLS. He's joined Boavista, who are basically kind of the sister club of Lille at this point. There's lots of kind of movement between the two. And I think it's quite exciting because it could kind of give MLS players a different pathway into Europe. Um, Angel Gomez is currently at Boavista Vista as well. So next year they should have quite an interesting team. Um, yeah, I just found it quite interesting that that, that deal had finally gone through um I, I will try and ask you a question Callum, that you, you do have an answer for I,
1: it was purely because i'd literally i was um a vista wore through me and then, yeah, you're, you're. we spoke about it last week in terms of another player moving to um So they're kind of like, it seems like they're picking out some assets from the MLS kind of in expectation that they can start to bleed them through into, obviously, the league um, when they're up to the ability, which, I mean, I think we're going to see more and more often. I think we've had some discussions off there about how the MLS is improving. And off the record,
0: we've both said that we
1: think the US men's national team will do quite well at the uh, 2026 World Cup. Because they've got some really good players in the mls coming through
0: yeah the the usa are are quarter finalists in 2026 that's my i'd say semis (laughs) that that might be slightly too rogue kind of six years (laughs) in the future but no i I really like their team and i think reggie callum could be kind of a good player and i think within 18 months we'll probably see him in france one final prediction of the show callum i say one final prediction i'm gonna go with two um the champions league winners in 2021 are going to be XYZ and the same for the FA Cup.
1: Um, FA Cup, I'm going to go Tottenham. I think I think Mourinho's record of winning a trophy wherever he goes will kind of stand up, and I think I think he's a, a good cup manager. Um, so I'd either see them winning that or the Europa League um, this season. To be honest, I think they'll finally get their hands on a trophy, and then. For the Champions League, I don't know. I think, it. I think again, it will probably be a Bayern Munich-Liverpool final. I, I, I think um, after Liverpool's kind of disappointment this year, it, I think if Liverpool had got through that round after Adrian kind of let, let the side down a little bit, I think we probably would have made our way to the final. So I think I, I can't see two teams in Europe that are better than us. And I don't know if PSG will go on to do what they did again. So I think uh, Bayern Munich and Liverpool...
0: I think Bayern Munich might retain it interesting I'm I'm also well actually I'm gonna say I'm also I'm gonna completely disagree I'm gonna go Everton to win the FA Cup no I think ever well yeah I mean who knows Chicago Fire almost won the World Cup got to remember so <laughs> so yeah um but no I think Everton as we've said have a really interesting team they've got a great manager and if it clicks I think they've really got the potential to go quite far um in the Champions League I tend to agree. I think Bayern Munich are definitely in the conversation. I think Liverpool will be in the conversation. Um, I don't know. I should have thought about this before I asked the question, shouldn't I, really? I'm actually going to go Bayern Munich as well, just because... And I mean, people talked about this year as being kind of the last hurrah for the squad. A lot of them are staying for next year as well. And I look at Real Madrid... Uh, I'm not particularly infused. I think, uh, again, if you look at Barcelona, even though they're keeping Lionel Messi, it's quite difficult to get excited about that team at the minute. Um, Juventus are simply cursed. They're they're not going to win the Champions League. And I think PSG will really struggle to come back from what happened last year because I, I honestly think they believed it was theirs to win and it slipped away. And the final was quite close as well. So kind of the psychological blow could be interesting. And again, we talk about PSG. This is probably going to be the final year, potentially, where they have both Neymar and Mbappe. I'd be surprised if if they both stayed another two seasons. So, yeah, I think Bayern Munich to win the Champions League too. Um, Callum, before we sign off, any final thoughts?
1: Um, the, The only final thought, I guess, is this kind of more of a political, in terms of football politics, is the I hope that they uh, continue to put all of the games on live TV because I'm looking forward to spending my month of September literally watching back-to-back-to-back-to-back Premier League games. So let's hope for more of that.
0: I agree. Um, I really hope they, they keep that going. I, I think, and again, I say this as someone who, who likes kind of non-league football as well, I, I think the 3pm blackout is... A, silly. Um, I don't think it really works, because if if you really want to watch a game at three o'clock, there are ways to do it. And B, is quite anti-competitive. I feel like non-league clubs should be able to draw in their own supporters, whether or not, man, you're on the telly or not. And again, it's going to have an impact, but there's ways around it, isn't there? I I just like to think that people support the non-league teams because they support the non-league teams rather than just thinking well i'll stay at home and watch it on the telly and a lot of these people and again it's easy to get a lot of these games are on sky and a lot of people don't have sky like i don't have sky so if it was the choice of going watching the game on a a sunday or going to kind of watch a non-league team it is difficult isn't it but yeah no i i think the 3pm blackout should just be a thing of the past if i'm being totally honest that, I feel, is probably the end of this week's episode of the Pre-Match Point podcast. My name has been Luke James. You can follow me on Twitter at Luke James underscore 32. I've been joined by none other than the Hornchurch Philip Lam, Callum <laughs> Ison. Where can the people find you on Twitter?
1: You can find me at Twitter, uh, simple, at Ison Callum, I S
0: O N, And you can also follow the podcast at Pre-Match Pint on Twitter. Pre-Match Pine pod, I think. you'll be able to find us it'll be Um, in the description just go look it'll be in the description scroll down you can do it anyway that brings another episode of the show to an end thank you so so much for listening make sure you subscribe and leave wonderful reviews until next time keep your head up beat your side trap and we'll see you soon